0: You are listening to Behind the Horse's Eyes on the Illiterate Podcast Network. Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Horse's Eyes. I am always your humble host, Mr. J. Ryan Chastain, TikTok's Horse Daddy, the king of horse talk, whatever the people are calling me this week. That is getting almost out of hand, but you know what? I am here for it. That started as a joke, and it's just taken on an entire life of its own at this point. I also thought I would get more done, considering that the show was going to go bi-weekly for a little while. Well, I kind of caught up on life, and... Um, no, no, I'm I'm actually getting less done. I have no idea how that works, but you know what? It it That's just how that worked. So a little housekeeping just right off the bat. I will be at Quarter Horse Congress in Ohio the last week of September for the reigning portion of Quarter Horse Congress. So if anybody's going to be out there, make sure you look for me. Come by, say hi, uh, all the good things you do. I promise you, I don't bite. Friday, the 22nd of July, I will be at Top Priority Horses doing some filming. It's not a public thing. It's a private thing. Um, But I'm going to be out there and busy most of that day uh, bringing you some um, pretty neat information on drum horses. And for those that follow my other social medias, you know that uh, I am starting my journey in dressage very soon. So expect a lot of dressage content coming um dressage overload western dressage but still dressage overload but let's get on with today's show so i was able to sit down with honestly one of my favorite people right now my brother in history my brother from another mother uh austin from the rancher podcast and austin just doesn't have a podcast austin is on um tiktok he's on youtube i'm pretty sure he's probably on instagram somewhere but we had this idea a few weeks ago about doing an homage to two great western icons the the only way i can put it is icons and that's Mr. Buster Welch and Baxter Black we lost them a few days apart both very different people but yet still so much the same so this is kind of a crossover episode um In fact, it's, you know, it probably edited a little different for the Rancher podcast compared to how it's going to be here on Behind the Horse's Eyes. But with that said, fans of both are probably going to get something just a smidge different. Then again, they may get the exact same. Regardless, I invite you to go over and listen to the Rancher. Um, Obviously, come over here and, and, and listen to these shows, but... Austin does an amazing job over there and does a lot of um, historical Western content uh, to an extent that I wish I could do. Austin is intelligent, he's eloquent, and you're going to find this show has something for everyone. We're not droning on about history and dates and people. We kind of go down a couple of rabbit holes here about the industry, and it makes some really good listening. So without any further ado, here's Austin and our homage to Buster Welch and Mr. Baxter Blunt. We are live, my guy. Awesome. Thanks for having me on. No problem. I mean, it it just took long enough for me to get all of my ducks in a row. A few of them were slower than others.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I do have a bone to pick with you already because uh, I'm coming on after Danger Erin or Feral Erin, which I always mix up with Danger Erin, but uh, you know, I saw her at the American Horse Council and so I'm like, well, shoot! Now I've got to follow her up. I mean, you know, history is com- completely boring compared to uh, what you know, she I, does on a day-to-day basis.
0: I hope you wear a size 14 because those are some big boots to fill. For she, sure, she is an absolute doll, and anybody to devote their life just the way she's done. I'm going up there this fall, and uh, that's going to be that's going to be a lot of fun. So I, I look forward to helping her. And quick note for everybody that doesn't know, uh, in my store, my merch store, the Feral Aaron, Feral Appalachia shirt still up hundred percent of that goes to Aaron and you guys have raised over 200 bucks so far for her.
1: That's awesome. That is awesome. Yeah. But I, I saw that she was on, I was like, man, I am definitely, uh, definitely going to have to bring my a game now.
0: So why don't you tell the little fo- Well, Tell the folks a little about who you are. We've been we've been conversing a little bit back and forth, and uh, kind of sort of become brothers in history, I guess.
1: Yeah. So uh, my name is Austin Halverson and uh, grew up in Oklahoma, showing quarter horses. Parents are both professional horsemen, judges for AQHA. Uh, so I was involved. You know, every horse show there every weekend doing stuff not just with my parents but also with the association and uh, so just really grew up in the industry and although I wasn't always as interested in the showing aspect I always liked uh, roping and whatnot but uh, wasn't really the type to want to hop on the trail and compete every weekend. Uh, I really liked the history and learning things about western history and uh, you know all that so uh, whenever I moved off to college kind of left the horses at home uh, got my degree and you know started reading a lot more trying to stay involved um, and decided you know there's a lot of stories that aren't told uh, there's a lot of great story a lot of great books um, but you know in the podcasting world uh, over the last 10 years you can find stories about just about anything except for the Western way of life and I was, Joke, you know, it's because we're probably 15 years behind the eight ball on, uh, you know, anything technologically
0: advanced like podcast. Right. So um, that's why yeah. I decided to get into it. Yeah, I have this conversation a lot with a lot of people about the industry as a whole, the horse industry as a whole. And that includes the, the Western industry from ranching to horses, the English interest inter- uh, industry from things like English sport and polo the entire industry as a whole is 15 to 20 years behind when it comes to brands, marketing, technology. I mean, you name it, It, it's nuts. Um,
1: Yeah. And it's funny because it's, it's fun to watch, you know, as somebody who works in uh, the the legal field has worked in the government and whatnot, uh, you know, watching people in our industry adapt things that are 10 years behind and just absolutely, you know, knock it out of the park. And you're like, man, you know, maybe we should hop in on this a little earlier and, uh, you know, create some success, ride the waves. And of course, you know, one thing that decided that kind of made me decide that this is something that's fruitful is, uh, you know, the, the recent, uh, spur from not only COVID, you know, people, rodeos are impossible to get into it. They're crowded, packed, whatnot, because during COVID they were really the only game in town. And, uh, you know, I saw those crowds on the cowboy channel and I saw the folks at the horse shows and whatnot. And I thought, you know what, there is an audience for this. Uh, The reason that nobody's doing it is not because there's not an audience. And I think you would probably agree with that. Wouldn't you?
0: Oh yeah. The, the, we've seen a huge influx here in the last couple of years and COVID had a lot to do with it because again, it was the only show, Western sports, the only show in town, everybody else was, was on hold. Um, and then television shows like yellowstone uh in 1883 and it has really brought light to the industry uh for better um in a lot in most cases and, and for worse in some cases because as you and i both know the what years that we have have take to try to get away from misconception and legend uh when someone new comes in, those are usually the first things that they grab to, and those are the you know those are the exciting points and stuff. And yeah, you know you you end up having conversations about notches on pistols and and things like that, you know. Um, but yeah, it it is it's grown leaps and bounds in the last three years.
1: Yeah, and you know, so what I wanted to do was kind of bring that primer two folks. And that's why I kind of chose podcasts because, um, you know, I always thought the best place that the, the place that I want my podcast to end up is I think about all of the folks in the industry who have listened to the same 40 country songs yes. on their radio in their arena since, you know, 1991, <laughs> because yes. I, I, you know, there's songs that I don't even know the name of that I can sing because yep. of all my days in the barn and at rodeos that, uh, you know, I, I would like to bring stories, not only to those folks, but the new folks, but, you know, just bring some type of entertainment value to that, uh, world. That's a little different than your radio playing uh, the same songs every day.
0: I, I always tell people when it comes to to country radio, not, not to go down a rabbit hole here. Um, Coletzel is actually coming into town here and this ah. is a prime example And you can always tell a certain demographic from another when half the people are going who, and the other half are going, I've already bought tickets. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to explain that there's music that exists outside of, um, uh, outside of the radio, just like in our industry, it's, it's hard to explain to people that what you see in the radio arena is not everyday life.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that's a little bit about me. Started The Rancher uh, at the end of 2020, middle of COVID, you know, been kind of scared. How do you do this? Uh, How do you record a podcast? Um, You know, what does that sound like? My first iteration, my first episode was on the history of the American Quarter Horse. And, uh, you know, it was so choppy and so bad that a month later after I had a few other podcasts under my belt, went back and re-recorded it because I was you know, like, man, we got to clean up the uh, audio. So uh, really continuing to learn and get better at that side, but uh, branched off into YouTube videos. And then uh, my wife was like, you've got to be on TikTok. That's where the audiences are. So I hopped on and that's where I met the horse king himself I'm now talking to. (laughs) Here we go. So, uh, you know, glad that uh, we connected and, you know, you had the idea to get on TikTok where the audiences were before me. And I really uh, find that, you know, fast, fantastic that you are doing that because I do think that that's where with the algorithm, the way it's set up, I mean, you get in front of people that would never have ever thought about, you know, riding horses or anything about them. And all of a sudden they are listening to every single episode or everything you post, right? So uh, that's a little bit about my journey to where I am
0: sitting here now. Another student of history. That's way more eloquent and prepared than I will ever be. We'll just go ahead and throw that out there. I'm flying by the seat of the pants. Austin's over here very well prepared. you know, I'm like, I've got a phone and a handful of notes. Let's make magic happen.
1: I don't know about that. Every time I record one, I'm like, Man, there's got to be a better way to put this story together. (laughs) You know, it's just, I mean, even though you know someone's life started somewhere and ended somewhere, you're like, surely, surely there's a better way to put this together. (laughs) You
0: know, have you ever run across a situation where you found somebody completely interesting? like, Like, they're famous for something, but then you start really digging into them and you go, there's nothing interesting about them except for this one little piece of thing that they did. Yes. Like they lived, did a thing and died. Like that was it.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I always say like the hardest podcast I ever did was uh bully rock, which, you know, is like supposed to be this like incredibly important, you know, figure in the horse industry and the horse history here in America. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, what did he do? It's like, well, he lived in England and then he was brought to America. It's like, okay, what else? Like, no, that's what he did. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like
0: that's it you know i tell people about uh about leo um everybody assumes leo had this great life and we don't know much about leo's racing career because it was all like fairgrounds and stuff like that and Mm -hmm. he was in a trailering accident and was completely lame outside of that and making babies that's all leo ever did yeah so you know and everybody's like do 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 leo and i'm like leo's not that interesting (laughs)
1: Yeah, I know. It's, it's hard. It's, it's, you know, it's that uh, thing of uh, kill your heroes, right? It's like, man, once yeah. you start looking into some of these, it's not as uh
0: No, you know, and they, yeah, they always, you know, um, a good friend of mine and she listens to her name's Phoenix jumps and uh, awesome eventer and dressage writer here in Aiken. She always says don't Google your heroes because I think Francis Marion broke her heart. I was, oh, yeah. No, you can't, you can't, You can't, don't Google anyone that died before 1860. No, yeah, Just
1: don't <laughs> dude even afterwards. I yes. mean it's like yeah, no, I mean I feel like that's the biggest part of history. And you know, I always tell people, I say, look, I mean, you know, one thing that you learn from history is that you have to have compassion for these figures because I mean, I you know, I've shooted Sunday, I've you know gone to church and sinned since then you know <laughs> like that's just the way humans are like it you know if, if you're going to judge someone you got to judge both the good and the bad and sometimes the fact that there's bad is what makes it even more impressive that they were able to do what they did you know and yeah that's what history you know it has taught me so much more about forgiveness and perspective that's right other people
0: well, and it, it is very easy to look at history in the context of the modern lens, and that's a hard way to look at history. You, you can't put historical figures in the modern context because you will hate them all mm-hmm. um, because a lot of people truly are people of their time. And if that time was horrible, then so be it. You know what I'm saying? Um Napoleon in some eyes is considered a hero for what he brought to the areas that he conquered. Well, if you lived in that area and he killed your dad in battle, he was not a hero. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? You know, and
1: yeah, Yeah, no. And it's, I mean, you know, Victor's write The history. So 100%, uh, you know, if the, uh, if PETA happens to win, uh, our great grandchildren might look at us with uh, quite a different lens than how we view ourselves
0: i rolled so, my eyes so hard i got a headache now austin
1: <laughs> i'm just saying that's why there's a, that's why you've got to win right so, I get it. Uh, that's why we're trying to educate people here so that you know in a few hundred years uh, the the western way of life is not completely gone and extinguished so yeah. i think it's something worth preserving and worth uh, you know telling stories about
0: Well, it's 100% is because it is, you know, it is a America's history is brief compared to the rest of the world. And Western expansion is even briefer as far as the height of the old West. Mm -hmm. Um, And so much happened in such a short period of time. But also something else happened, too. And that's that's the dime novel. Yeah. And it. (laughs) it misconstrues a lot. And I'm glad that there's a guy like you out there that, that just gives the straight dope um, because a lot of the people, you know, I think I said earlier, a lot of the people that we hold uh, in such high regard and high esteem, if you met them on the street, you probably wouldn't have liked them. Yeah, Somebody like Wyatt or may have been a huge jerk.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. And I mean, you know, one of my heroes, uh, Charles Goodnight by yeah. all accords, was such a Bible thumper like, you know, would have been the worst person to hang out with because he was so strict. And so, you know, just like by the book, like you probably would have been like, man, we got to get out of here. This guy's going to, you know, start lashing us about across the back for uh, wanting to have a beer with him. You know, yeah,
0: or like, you know, everybody wants to talk about the first Pony Express riders and they were really just young kids that made more money than they had since and drank it all away.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Like you would not want to know unless you're just in the party crowd, you wouldn't want to know. They were, they were, they were the frat boys of their day
1: for sure. Yeah. No, history is a fascinating place. You know, as you said, American history is brief and uh, you know, not to bring in Yellowstone for those of y'all who don't want to talk about Yellowstone.
0: Oh, we're going to talk about Yellowstone. (laughs) The
1: the year 1883. I mean, it seems like 90% of my podcasts the person I'm talking about was prominent in the year 1883. I mean, that's just such a, you know, critical time period. I mean, the expansion, like you were talking about the cattle trails, I mean, so much was happening in the early 1880s. I mean, I would say that, you know, every famous story we have because of dime novels coming out in the 1890s comes from
0: 75 through 85, you know, it's a 10 year period. I mean, but, you know, and then a lot of people, they they, I think they miss the idea, too, that our idea of the Old West is between like 1883 and 1885, mm -hmm. and they forget that the 1870s all the way to like 1910. Yeah, could be just as wild. There were still people robbing trains and stagecoaches, and there were still mud and blood on the streets of some of these towns and it Mm -hmm. was chaos in a lot of these places, but there was, there was law, you know, it's, it's not gun smoke all the time. Yeah. The the good guy doesn't get always the shot in the shoulder. Matt Dillon, that shoulder has to be worn out.
1: (laughs) For sure. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because, well, you know, kind of a nice segue into what we're going to talk about uh, the lives of two men, one of them, Buster Welch, the other Baxter black. I mean, Buster Welch, when you go back through his life, I mean, he passed away a month ago and he was of the age where skipping school
0: to go ride Bronx was still acceptable. I mean, you know, there was
1: no truant officer coming after him for it.
0: No. And then, yeah, because there were no truant officers. Uh, Yeah. And the crazy thing is, and and I know we'll get into it, is that only did he live in that time. He lived in a modern time with Cell phones and smartphones, and was still competing at a high level.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. He was still hopping on horses well into his 80s and uh, wooing crowds. So it's, you know, it's a fascinating link uh, when you talk about men like that and how, you know, 1883 was not as far away as you think it was. You no. know, it's three, four generations. Uh, and sometimes men can live to where it's only two generations.
0: Exactly. So.
1: Yeah. Well, with that said, you want to get into the life of Buster Welch?
0: Let's jump into the life of Buster Welch.
1: All right. Well, you know, I, I think the big prelude to his life for me, um, you know, is I want you to think about the adversity that I'm going to talk about and how Buster Welch turned that adversity into success because, you know, especially today, you know, they say, "Oh, this generation soft Or you know, you know, every generation says that uh, the ones after them aren't as tough. But uh, when you think about what we might be facing here in the future, you know, if you lived through 2008 financial crash, or you think that one's about to happen again, um, sometimes it's good to look at the lives of men like Buster Welch, who you know, born in 1928. Think about all of the economic uncertainty, especially in the horse industry of all industries. Uh, that he had to deal with and how he somehow came out of each one of those crises better, a better man. He turned those things into a success in his life. Uh, But, you know, to start off, born May 23rd, 1928, just outside of Sterling City, Texas. Um, You know, I always like to throw in a little geography for my people, J. Ryan. Uh, Do you know where Sterling
0: City is? I haven't a clue. Texas so, might as well be another country for me. I know where Stephenville <laughs> is, and I know where El Paso and Waco are.
1: Okay, so if you want to cut halfway between Stephenville and El Paso, <laughs> which you know is a good, healthy like seven or eight hundred miles, uh, right in the middle of there somewhere, just a little south is Sterling City. So right. if you're heading out towards Midland. Um, you know, I know where
0: Midland is. Yes. Yeah.
1: There's, you know, there's these great towns, Eden, uh, you know, garden city, Sterling city. They make you sound, make you think that there are these beautiful, uh, you know, oases, but instead they're dusty towns where there's not even any fence. I mean, they literally just have row crops of cotton and, you know, sheep and goats. I mean, there's just nothing out there. And so that's kind of where Buster Welch was born into this, you know, 1928 Dust Bowl era, Texas. I mean, you know, just think about town of three, 400. And, uh, you know, not not many hopes and dreams coming out of there, if you know what I mean. And, you know, even worse than that, his mother died shortly after his birth. uh, And his dad left him with his grandparents to go get a job to to provide for his now, you know, burgeoning family in uh, Midland for the, the oil fields, which were just coming about. So um, he was being raised by his grandparents and they had a little bit of a stock operation. And so he was, you know, raised around livestock. Um, but, you know, kind of the old the old school system of subsistence, you know, uh, just getting by type of farming. This was not any major operation where they were making any money. Uh, By any means, but uh, it sounds like my my
0: teen. It sounds like my teenage years is what you just (laughs) described.
1: Oh, man. Well, luckily, not as dusty and aching South Carolina.
0: right? No, no. We were in northeast Alabama at the time with a herd of of seed Angus. Mm -hmm. And uh, Angus weren't quite as lucrative as then as they are now. And uh, it was a great idea. Uh, We ate a lot of eggs and that was only because the hens laid them.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I was, you know, my grandfather grew up in, uh, you know, depression era uh, North Dakota and he was born in, I believe late 19 teens, early 1920s. And he said one year uh, we traded our milk cow for chickens during the depression. And he said, we had a lot of chicken that year. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's like there was no other choice chicken yeah. on
0: the menu. Yeah. Cows ate before we did a lot of times. Yeah. Yeah. So uh,
1: fortunately though, his dad, you know, was getting uh, pretty successful out in Midland and so he remarried and brought Buster to Midland. Uh, But of course, as I mentioned earlier, he was a little bit more interested in the trade going on at the um, stock sales and auction house than he was at the, uh, you know, school. So he would go instead and learn from the folks that were hanging out at the stockyards uh, the cow punchers, the ranchers, all of them. And that's where he started breaking horses and, you know, meeting kind of the, the local, um, stockman, if you will. So at 13, he ran away. And again, I mean, 13 years old, I would say that most 13 year olds are what, uh, seventh, eighth grade. (laughs) (laughs) That's, uh, that's not much schooling. Uh, So ran away and joined the Proctor brothers who had a ranch out there. And, uh, you know, there's not much information on the Proctor brothers I was trying to hunt down. I know that they're very, you know, prominent in Midland and there's awards and scholarships and stuff named after them, but there's just not really a good history of them. Hence why I try and do these podcasts because I'm sure they've got a grandkid or, uh, you know, someone in the family that would love to kind of share that story. Um, But, you know, a very sizable ranch that uh, Welch went to work for and was kind of funded by oil money. And um, he was breaking colts and chopping wood and carrying water. I mean, he was doing the grunt work that of course you would put any 13 year old on uh, at that time, because of course they're not going to get to do the, the fancy uh, day work of just riding and uh, you know, being a cowboy, if you will. Uh, So he had a pretty tough start there. Um, but, you know, from the Proctors, he went to a lot of famous ranches and, you know, uh, here in Texas, we have what's called the Texas barbecue passport. Have you ever heard of this? I have heard. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, a lot of folks in Texas like to go from, uh, you know, through the, Texas monthly top 50 list and get stamps on their passport. And I mean, spend weekends taking day trips to no name towns in the middle of nowhere off highways to get barbecue. And I kind of joked that Buster Welch did the uh, Texas ranch passport club because he worked on basically the who's who of Texas ranches, right? He worked for the Proctors. He worked on the four sixes, the Matador, the long X, the King ranch, the pitchfork. I mean, you know, you name it. He seems like he worked on it between the time he turned about 16, 17 and uh, the end of his life. And of course, you know, he's most noted for his work on the King ranch and the four sixes, of course with Yellowstone. Um, But uh, you know, I don't know how many cowboys you've talked to, uh, but it seems like all of them tend to jump around for one reason or another. Typically it's because they're not the most agreeable of guys. Uh. Yeah.
0: <laughs> you know, most, uh, and these days it's um, you see a lot of gals, a lot of mm-hmm. cowgirls that are out there living out of trailers. In fact, um, I, I just sat down with uh, Amanda Ray and that's what she's doing. She moved from Alberta, Canada to the States and she is going st- from state to state starting colts doing 30 day starts on colts and uh that's the lifestyle she chose i'm living vicariously through them because i i I love you know having having roots Um, yeah but i can only imagine the lifestyle for a young man it's got to be awesome
1: I know it's uh you know it's kind of like uh <laughs> my generation after college right you go to Europe to backpack and find yourself right it's like man I would much rather just find myself a nice saddle and uh find myself <laughs> yeah. here in United States for a lot cheaper and maybe even get paid to do it but That's right. uh,
0: buy a saddle on a bed roll and just travel
1: Yeah so uh, completely different lifestyle, though, than a lot of the the horse trainers that we think of. You know, um, there's a different tough road to hoe for horse trainers that typically involves uh, just living in the, the back of a horse trailer at every different horse show every weekend. Um, but, you know, with his experience and success uh, working on these ranches, he actually saved up a little bit of money and decided to get into the cattle business himself, which, um, you know... <laughs> I've never been in the cattle business. My advice to anyone and my advice that I've ever gotten from anyone is don't get into the cattle business.
0: (laughs) Yeah. That that is the best advice I can, even if you start out, Hey, I'm going to start out a small seed stock operation. Don't.
1: Yeah. So, uh, unfortunately he, uh, bought in and thought, you know, Hey, I'm going to go into business for myself, but, uh, immediately a drought struck Texas pretty hard in the 1950s. Uh, so if you, remember back, you know, born in 1928 and he's getting his herd started just around the 1950s. So he's really still in his mid twenties. I mean, you know, just getting started uh, just buying enough money to scrape by, to get a piece of land and get some cattle and this drought strikes. And um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, pay attention to what he did. He decided to uh, turn his attention towards cutting. And so, this is where he started, you know, getting on some good horses and practicing. And, you know, he's seen uh, the National Cutting Horse Association, you know, had started in the late 1940s. Um, It's interesting, you know, the American Core Horse Association, the NCHA, all of these associations really came out of that post-war period. And uh, just like America, you know, men came back from war and you know, idle hands are the devil's playground, right? I feel like all their wives were like, go form some association and get out of the house. So, uh, you know, he found himself in the burgeoning sport of cutting and um, there were just now becoming futurities, championship shows and the popularity of cutting, you know, the old West. I mean, you had uh, heroes on the TV uh, that were, you know, in these spaghetti Westerns, if you will. And he decided, you know, with this popularity, maybe I can make some money doing this to uh, supplement what's going on in the cattle business. Um, And he, you know, got a few horses that he had become familiar with when he worked for Homer Ingham and Warren shoemake, which were respected cattlemen out in New Mexico and West Texas. And uh, you know, One of the first ones that he had was Chickasha Mike that, um, you know, got him his start. And, uh, his sire was of course, the legendary, uh, Billy Clegg, you know, much about that horse, J Ryan.
0: Um, you're going to be mad, but I don't have that horse in my notes.
1: That's fine. Uh, you know, Billy Clegg, there's not a ton known about him I will say, but, Uh, he has a lot of famous offspring, which I will try and put some links in the show notes about him. But, you know, as we were mentioning earlier about, uh, Leo and some of these other horses, not, not a ton known about him, you know, had a bit of a show career, but, uh, you know, amongst his offspring were Chickasha Mike, uh, but, you know, Chickasha Mike will come back into the story. It was Marion's girl who brought him his first NCHA world championship. Uh, which was in 1954, and then also his second one in 1956. So I um, wanted to talk a little bit about Marion's Girl. Uh, of course, had Wimpy via her sire, Silver Wimpy. Um, you know, I have a whole episode on Wimpy. I love Wimpy. Um, have you heard my theory on where you guys nickname?
0: Um, no, I haven't name? heard your theory. I did a video on Wimpy, and uh, I didn't, didn't necessarily have a theory on the name, but I want to hear your theory.
1: So I honestly think, uh, you know, Popeye, Wimpy uh-huh. from Popeye. So Popeye actually originated from a cartoonist in South Texas. Oh, really? And so I, for some reason, I feel like, you know, there's some type of popularity of Popeye at that time. You know, it all kind of lines up of like when those cartoons are out, um, South Texas, all of that. I think he might have been named after, uh, you know, a, a cartoon character, which uh, you know, it's not out of the realm of possibility. I've heard other people say, well, you know, uh, it's kind of like when you call the biggest guy in the classroom, you know, uh, a pipsqueak or tiny. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe that's where it came from. But I, I like to think that maybe yeah. it has something to do with. I just opera. think
0: it's funny that Mr. P1, the first yeah. horse ever registered with the American Quarter Horse Association is wimpy <laughs> yeah
1: <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm sure when they uh actually chose that they were like are we sure that this is the one that we want to you know yeah uh, don't we want to
0: give it to a
1: horse with a name like
0: strong mike or you know <laughs> so, yeah. we've something... got we've got strong mike el diablo and wimpy
1: yeah yeah it's but you know poetic justice i guess so yeah. um you know interestingly enough marion's girl was actually an orphan um and was going to have what I consider another not so great name, uh, Wimpy's Dooney. <laughs> so that was the original name that she was uh, registered under.
0: This goes but full circle back to our previous conversation about some of these names. Yeah, I mean, I, I have no information on where Dooney was coming from, no. but uh, and and that's something too. And and not to not to cut you off, that a lot of people yeah. have to understand about some of these earlier horses is that. Um, though they may have competed a couple of times they went straight from competition to a ranch and punching out babies Mm -hmm. and so there's not a lot on them we know more about their offspring than we do them sometimes um and and even horses that are in the hall of fame some of those horses all we have is their pedigree and their offspring
1: yeah and unfortunately that's going to be the uh, story on marion's girl because uh, you know, I'll say Marion's girl got the name because an oilman named Marion Flint bought her. And so it was, you know, when you go back on to some of these pedigrees, I mean, you've read enough of them, you know, it'll be like, uh, you know, <laughs> Joe's, uh, you know, Philly. Yep. <laughs> like, oh, it's uh, Mr. Uh, Smith's, you know, stallion like yep. that after a certain point that's all they were known as right? well it was
0: it was very common around the turn of the century uh, up into the 20s to name a horse after its owner especially if it was a founding sire of a line uh, joe hancock joe hancock got the name because it was owned by joe hancock when they went to the racing secretary to register the horse the horse didn't really have a name had a barn name they were like what do you want to call the horse uh, it's owned by a guy named hancock
1: yeah yeah, yeah or so- uh you know if you got really lucky they would at least say the color. So like, uh, yeah. John's Roan, <laughs> like, yeah. you know, it was like, Oh, at least we can di- differentiate it between that and his, uh, Bay, you know? Well, so.
0: Yeah. So like the third horse registered with the AQHA and another horse that it's on everything's paperwork, including fence posts and John Deere tractors is Joe Reed mm-hmm. named after Joe Reed.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which I guess is almost kind of a vanity play uh these days you know to look back feel like name the horse after yourself you'll get in the, it'll get in the record books
0: yeah so if you ever see anything you know 20 years from now that's in the aqha hall of fame and it's named ryan trastain it had to be a fan because i didn't breathe that <laughs> yeah
1: no i got you uh that's like uh the halter horse uh beyonce
0: so definitely
1: wasn't her horse
0: but uh, I'm, I'm gonna have to go research this horse now
1: you will yeah that was a pretty prominent uh mare when i was growing up showing halter horses. So, uh, pretty successful one. I don't really? know if she's uh, had any good offspring, but I yeah. mean,
0: they, a halter horse and then named Beyonce. And then I'm, I'm thinking about it. It makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So,
1: yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, back to Marion's girl though, she, um, was purchased by Marion Flint for $2,500 and he told Welch, you know, Hey, I want you to, uh, to work your magic you know he was very well known in west texas uh welch was for getting these horses into prime shape and so uh you know over her career they earned thirty five thousand dollars which you know is a time. pretty yeah, yeah pretty good uh chunk of change especially uh you know you think that's almost uh ten or more than ten times what they paid for uh, you know, obviously we always talk about the the hidden costs of horse ownership, but I think $35,000 would have, would have covered it back then.
0: And for those that are wondering what the hidden cost is, it's everything. <laughs> it's Every, not very hidden. Yeah. It's not <laughs> hidden. It's everything. Mind, body, soul and bank account.
1: Yeah. Uh, but as I mentioned earlier, you know, the, the sad part about Marion's girl is that in the late fifties um, she was bred to King. And neither her nor the foal would survive to term, so uh, you know that that was the end of that. I mean, no, you have no um, offspring from one of the most famous cutting horses of the the early NCHA era, right there. And you know, as you mentioned, that's the the sad part about some of these horses back then is that you don't have much of a story of them living besides their offspring. And if they don't have any, then uh, you know they really become. Uh, lost in the annals of history because they don't even have a, you know, a track record to show for it, Um,
0: especially being bred to King, which mm -hmm. was definitely going to be the foundation of the line.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, that was, you know, they they were putting it all out on the line on the first one, (laughs) you know, that was going to be, they were (laughs) throwing it all at the wall. Yeah. So, uh, tough, tough break for Marion's girl, but of course, Buster Welch, um, you know, moved on and became one of the first 10 men who pitched in to underwrite the first NCHA Futurity, uh, which he also then won in 1962 with a horse named Money's Glow, which I think is a fantastic name yes, yes. that fits kind of more into the, the names of horses of the last, you know, 20 years than it does uh, a horse in 1962. Uh, you know, they were ahead of their time with that one, I think.
0: It, it, it yeah it definitely fits in today yeah you, you, and could then, hear, you could hear money's glow right up there with metallic Cat, and it would just slide right in yeah you would think okay it's a little
1: tacky but you know it fits listen <laughs> yeah. I,
0: I had a, an american saddlebred named my honey's money so, oh yeah you know
1: there it was tacky
0: we called him benjamin like hundred dollar bills you know
1: ah uh, that's man i always love that uh you know finding the good barn name based on their their yeah. names
0: well his original barn name was bobby but i had a renter on the property that was named bobby at the time so i couldn't yell bobby because they'd both turn and look at me so it was like you're ben now
1: <laughs> that's funny uh yeah so then in 63 he came back and won it with a uh glow which actually had you know uh was kind of the the first horse that he had bred Uh, between his previous ones that came together to, uh, you know, get him another successful horse, uh, Chick Shea Mike bred along with money's Glow, And then in 66 uh, with Ray J's Pete, which I mean, you know, now we're getting into some of the names that uh, uh, Welch is more famous for because in 71, it was dry dock that he won the fraternity on. And in 77, it was Peppy Sam Badger. So uh I think we probably need to pause there for a minute and point out the uh you know the those two horses and <laughs> why they should not just be listed as uh fraternity winners.
0: Yeah, so when when you talk about horses like first of all, we gotta start with dry dock because dry bot dry dock is the result of dot bar and uh pacolina. Okay, and if pacolina doesn't uh ring a bell then all of those paco horses you know uh paco bueno all of those sorts yeah that's paco Mm-hmm. dot bar is probably the epitome of the american quarter horse in his time yep there's been a lot of people that want to say the mixer horse is dot bar or it's wimpy or it's this mm-hmm. that and the other um Let's just say those horses were quintessential of what the AQHA was looking for. And in fact, Dot Bar completely changed the rules when it came to how they judged halter stock.
1: That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I had the privilege of growing up not too far from Orin Mixer's uh, property and would drive by. And it was always funny to, you know, look out and be like, oh, that's the landscape that he drew those yeah. things on. Um, but you know, as you mentioned, I mean, all of these horses did have a, a part to play in building that composite of the American quarter horse.
0: And on a side note on orn mixer, just, just real briefly. So I've had, I don't know, a hundred people say, oh, by the way, you know, the mixer horse is wimpy. And then there's yeah. another handful that goes, No, it's my uncle's horse or no, yeah. <laughs> it's dot bar. I just want to let everybody know that the mixer horse is purely just the mixer horse. But there is an image, uh, and if I'm not mistaken, I think Oren Mixer actually painted it of Wimpy. Mm -hmm. But it's reversed, and it's a different background. But the horses do look very similar. But I promise you guys, the Mixer horse was a figment of Mixer's imagination. And for those that don't know what the Mixer horse is, that is the image that the AQHA uses for the American Quarter Horse. They they gave it out everything. It's been on every calendar. It's been on T-shirts. Uh, it was hanging in every feed store for probably 40 years. Um, it's a, a sorrel quarter horse um, with a, a field and a few trees in the background. Mm-hmm. Y- you can't miss it. If I'm not mistaken, I think the Mixer horse is what? One, one white sock? One like white that. sock
1: and a short tail.
0: Yeah. So, yeah, yeah it's it's nothing but Orrin Mixer's idea of the quintessential American quarter horse.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, it's not wrong to say, oh, that Wimpy or bar or Poco Bueno. I mean, it's not wrong to say any of those horses are the Mixer horse, but just not all of it. You know, he, you know, uh, my dad was quintessential in creating the World Confirmation Horse Association, WCHA, and they did the exact thing that uh, Oren Mixer did. You know, they came up with the quintessential halter horse. And I mean, he can tell you, yeah, we, you know, said that It needs to have hawks that look like this and stifles that look like that, you know, but like, it's not one horse because there, there is no perfect horse, right. Mm -hmm. Um, There probably never will be, but some of these horses get close and, you know, dry dock and all of them are definitely part of that line, that early seventies line that, um, you know, kind of set a broader foundation. You know, when we talk about foundation horses, we always want to talk about Wimpy because he's, P one and you know King and Leo and all these horses, but I mean, there's the the Peppies and the Dry Docks and all these are really that second generation that uh, yes you know culminated in the the you know the discipline breed discipline specific uh, you know horses the the cutting horse versus yep. the reining horse versus you know uh, instead of just the quarter horse
0: and and most of the early horses were. <clears throat> what i call the the pure essence of what the aqha was and that was that was quarter mile race horses mm-hmm. heavy thoroughbred influence That's why they there's other associations other than the american quarter horse association this as is the foundation quarter horse association national foundation those are completely different horses and those early horses the leos um the um, you know, Joe Reed's and those type of horses, they bear very little resemblance to those second generation horses, the dry docks and the dot bars and the Mr. San Um mm-hmm. They were bigger, stronger and more suited to s- certain sport. This be it either cutting or reining cow horse or or so be it.
1: Yeah, for sure. And uh, you know Peppy Sam Badger, uh, you know King Ranch. I mean, this is yeah. It's it's fascinating to see uh, kind of we're we're seeing a renaissance, right? Of mm-hmm. uh, the the four sixes and the King Ranch. If you look at their uh, advertisements in the uh, Quarter Horse Journal and other places, they're coming back. Uh, but there was you know there was a period in the you know 90s early 2000s where those they weren't breeding competitive, you know, horses in the quarter horse world the way some more, uh, you know, trainer oriented or breeding oriented places were. I mean, it was just like they were making money selling Ford uh, trucks with King Ranch edition on them. Instead, you know, yeah. so uh, it's cool to see them come back to that. But the '70s um, was really the the heyday uh, of the quarter horse breeding on some of these places. Um, and we're seeing them work their way back towards that now. Um, but you know, Welch was a big part of that because again, of course he was at the the King Ranch in the four sixes and he trained cutting horses and held clinics and schools to train other folks on how to become, you know, effective, uh, champion cutters in the showing world. And, uh, you know, at the same time, he was also trying to manage a few different ranches at the same time, like not at the same time as this like two or three ranches he was trying to manage (laughs) while also doing all of this you know just like i just i don't know how he had the time to hop on a horse uh much less do any of this because i mean managing a ranch is obviously a 24 7 job much less two or three of them um but you know in uh, 1971, as I mentioned, Dry Dock was the fourth to win the NCHA fraternity with Welch. And, uh, you know, he was a full brother to Doc Alina and was by Doc Bar out of Pokolina and was bred by Dr. and Mrs. Uh, Stephen Jensen. So, uh, you know, just wanted to give a little bit of a shout out to uh, Dr. Jensen, definitely a respected breeder in the quarter horse world. But um, back to Welch, I think that, you know, his legendary status was sealed in 74 when he rode Mr. San Pepe for the King Ranch to an NCHA World Championship. Uh, you know, it's funny because uh, one of Welch's sons was also riding at the same time. And so we have this uh, fantastic uh, time period where uh, one of them is riding uh, Mr. Sam Pepe and the other ones riding Sam Pepe Badger. I mean, you know, can you imagine? <laughs> you show up to a competition and you're like, "All right, who's here?" And they say, "Oh, well, the Welches and uh, the Peppies are here." And you're just like,
0: I just put my stick back <laughs> in the trailer. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm added, added money myself.
0: The check and I'm gonna get out of here. Yeah, you're you're just added money, kid. That's all it yeah. is.
1: <laughs> yeah. So uh, you know, won the championship in '74 and then in '76. And then, actually, in 76, also won the AQHA World Championship in cutting. Um, so, you know, really, I mean, how else to say of the dominant at this point in time? And, uh, you know, Peppy Sam Badger was bred by Joe Kirk Fulton, which, uh, for those of us who are from the uh, Big 12 states, uh, Joe Kirk Fulton was one of the first mass riders for Texas Tech. Uh, so if you ever look out on game day and see the, the masked rider riding out after a touchdown, uh, Joe Kirk Fulton helped start that.
0: So he started the whole red Raider on horseback. I did not know that I learned a thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I actually went to, um, the Stonewall rodeo, which is in Stonewall, Texas a few weeks ago. And the Fulton ranch is one of the big sponsors. Uh, he's got, uh, he unfortunately passed away a few years ago, but, uh, the Fulton Ranch is quite possibly one of the most beautiful parts of Texas right outside of uh, Fredericksburg, uh, which is now all, you know, bachelorette wine country. <laughs> so <laughs> who knows how long a ranch will be able to hold yeah. on out there.
0: Somebody will want to put condos in a dog park.
1: Yeah. Uh, so, you know, moving on through his career, you know, I could talk for days about the championships and, uh, you know, Peppy Sam Badger getting in the Quarter Horse Hall of Fame and, you know, 21 million from his offspring. Uh, but, you know, you're going to have to read that because this would get a little boring uh, if we just listed off numbers. Uh, start to could, sound a little. We bit could like talk so. about
0: we could talk three hours about each of those horses.
1: Yeah, it'll start to sound a little bit more like an Old Testament book if I start <laughs> reading, uh, you know, numbers and names. Um, in the beginning,
0: okay. there was Mr. Sam Peppy. You know, it would be in the beginning there was Leo because that's where it started.
1: Yeah, there you go. Uh, But, you know, one of the interesting things I found from a obituary for uh, Mr. Welch was uh, they they I'm going to read from it uh, directly. It said that Welch's contributions to the cutting horse, ranching and Western way of life were recognized far and wide. He was a member of the NCHA Members Hall of Fame and the NCHA Riders Hall of Fame. He's also in the American Quarter Horse Association Hall of Fame and the Texas Cowboy Hall of Fame and has been honored with several awards, including a statue in Fort Worth. And some of the accolades include the National Golden Spur, the Foy Proctor Memorial Cowman's Award, the Zane Schulte Award, the Charles Goodnight Award, the Western Horseman Award, and the Trailblazers Award. So, I mean, <laughs> he, if, if there's an award for a cowboy alive today, you know, Buster Welch won it. And I think that that's why that scene in Yellowstone is uh, pretty accurate. Uh, you know, that it, there's three people that we really respect and revere here in Texas. And uh, Mr. Welch was definitely one of them.
0: You call them what? The three gods of Texas, the, the almighty <laughs> yeah. George Strait and Buster Welch.
1: Yeah, that was that was the, the line. But, uh, you know, unfortunately, he passed away uh, June 12th in abilene texas at the age of 94 uh you know quite the life lived uh, you know you think about 1928 to today uh what all you know someone would have seen i mean especially in our horse industry uh just a fascinating life and a fascinating character to talk about
0: the uh you know and one of the things that fascinates me about him um is that a lot of people don't know in 1999 Buster had a stroke and then in 2011 recovers from a stroke. And then um, in Fort Worth wins the national cutting horse association fraternity championship cup um, on uh bet. He's a cat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I mean I get out of the bed with like a little sciatic nerve pain and I'm not getting on a horse that day. This man has a stroke. And, and, and t- 20 years later. Yeah. And then geez Louise, they don't make them like that anymore.
1: No, no. And I mean, they have an interview with, um, I'm blanking on his name, Bet he's a cat's uh, trainer. And he said, I mean, you know, I grew up idolizing this guy and he hops on my horse and puts on a performance like that, you know, like hard, hard to imagine there. I know for a fact there wasn't a dry eye in the house because I know
0: people that were there. And he was and, what in his seventies at that time. Yeah. Recovered from a stroke in his seventies on a, let's just say a very highly bred quarter horse yeah. that's going on to give us some amazing babies. Anything with the last name cat.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, you know, obviously it's not as uh fast paced as uh, NASCAR or whatnot, but you know, imagine if a seven year old, uh, you know, like a, a Richard Petty were to hop in a NASCAR, you know, yeah. stock car today and uh win the Daytona five hundred. I mean, you just it's it's unfathomable that oh, yeah. someone can do that.
0: Well, and and the fact to do it at a high level. Yeah. It's one thing to go out there and do uh I don't know, one of those uh tribute kind of things. They put a little, you know, they put a steer in front of him it's a little slow and he just yeah. goes through the motions. No, no, no. This man won the fraturity.
1: Scored over like a 221, you know. Yeah. Like it was, it in his 70s
0: that. after a stroke. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. So uh, you know, fascinating, fascinating life there. Um if you want to learn more about him, you know, NCHA and AQHA have Hall of Fame pages on him. Um, You know, there's plenty of interviews. I got a lot of information actually from a, I believe it was a mid 1980s Texas monthly piece on him. So, you know, think about that. That was 40 years ago. Uh, Half of his story hadn't even been told at that time. No, (laughs) you know. Um, So there's great records and great information about him. Um, But, you know, just a foundation of our, uh, industry that, you know, unfortunately, passed away. I mean, he was there for the beginning of the NCHA.
0: Well, he was there also for the beginning of what would become the American quarter horse, because you got to think up until the 1950s, a lot of people that own quarter horses could look at somebody else's quarter horse and not know it was a quarter horse. Yeah. That was a big, that was a big thing was, you know, well, we don't technically know what a quarter horse is, but we know it's not that. I'm, I'm I'm quoting joe hancock there but you yeah. know it it was such a pivotal uh, pivotal time period and buster was there for all of it and he saw it all come to f- fruition um at the end with some of the amazing well-bred horses we have today that some people don't agree with but they're saying they're sound leave them alone yeah yeah no for sure one of my most beloved sponsors has got to be Audible. I had an Audible account long before I thought about ever getting into podcasting. And Audible has an awesome gift for all of my listeners. And if you head over to audibletrial.com forward slash Ryan, you're going to get a free audiobook on them and me. All you have to do is sign up for a free trial. And if you decide that Audible is not for you, and within 30 days, you can cancel no harm, no foul, you spend no money, and you get to keep that free audiobook. Audible has hundreds of thousands of books in their catalog, read by world-renowned narrators. From New York Times bestsellers to the classics, they're all on Audible. So again, head on over to audibletrial.com forward slash jryan and pick up your free audiobook today. I bet you didn't know we had a merch store. That's right, we actually have merch. If you head on over to the description, the notes of this episode, there will be a link there to the merch store. and You can head on over to the Mediocre Horseman store. From there, we have socks, we have hoodies, we have tanks, we have tees, and there's new designs coming out all the time. And the special this month is the Feral Appalachia shirt. 100% of the proceeds of that shirt are going to help feral horses in Appalachia. And 50% of everything else that's sold in the store is also going to go help feral horses in Appalachia through Feral Erin as part of the Appalachia Legacy Initiative. So click the link in the description, head on over there, get something, help out some amazing horses, some amazing people, and uh, help me feed my horses, for crying out loud. If you're listening to me, then I know you listen to other podcasts. Don't worry, I'm not mad that you're cheating. In fact, I'd cheat on me too. But I figured I'd take the time to tell you about one of my new favorite podcasts, and that's The Rancher. Austin over at The Rancher has a passion for history and an ear for a great story. And trust me when I say this, he's a heck of a lot more eloquent with his talking than I am. From rodeo to tales of the old West, the rancher brings Western traditions to a whole new generation of listeners. You can find the rancher wherever you get podcasts today.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I think, um, you know, another person that we wanted to give, uh, you know, homage to who passed away that was big in the industry. um, Not as much detail about him because I don't think that we should spend any time reading, uh, the poetry of Baxter black because there's only one person who can do it properly. And and that is no longer with us, uh, is Baxter black. So I'm going to tell you at the beginning of this, you're either going to have to, first of all, I would recommend go back and watch a few of them if you never have. And from there start reading them and you'll read them in his voice, (laughs) you know, and that's, that's the only way that, uh, Baxter Black should be enjoyed is in his voice because he was one of a kind.
0: You know, we were talking earlier via text and we were talking about how we both had an admiration for Dan Carlin mm-hmm. and the way he uses his voice to frame a story. Baxter Black did the same thing in his poetry. You were there. When when Baxter's mouth started moving, you were there.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that was definitely a you know, a moving part, I, in preparation for this, I went back and read a few and you know, I had some of my own favorites, but one of the ones that I found in the list uh, that I hadn't seen before was uh, one about a, uh, a state fair or a county fair where everything had gone wrong. Mm. And uh, you know, it's the, the lights went out, the uh, concessions weren't on time, the band quit, you know, a flood came through all this stuff But at the very end, the little boy came in and uh, picked up his ribbon and, you know, all these volunteers that are sitting in there dejected uh, get to see this one little boy pick up his, you know, fifth place ribbon. And, uh, you know, they all say, well, you know, when do we start on next year? And I think anybody that's ever worked in our industry or volunteered on anything uh, understands that feeling of, you know, (laughs) what? Putting on 4-H horse shows or any of that stuff, man. When it's going on, you're like, I am so sick of this. What did I get myself into? This is more work than you know, I signed up for. And then you see something like, you know, a kid who won his first fifth place, you know, ribbon or, you know, just got to get out of their house for the day to go show. And it makes it all worth it. And I think that, you know, like you said, it just transported me back to a lot of my childhood. And that's what Baxter Black was so good at.
0: The uh, the best compliment I've ever gotten was in a comment and it was on a video. And I'm so critical because I hate to hear myself talk. Same. Like, I don't, I don't, I'll, I'll, I listen to my shows and my TikToks to edit them. And then outside of that, I don't go back and listen to them. Um, mm-hmm. I just don't, I don't like the way I sound. I, I know when I pause, when I had to think about something, you know, real quick to get it out. And I had someone comment on a video that said uh, that you are the modern Baxter Black or something like that. I That's like I praise. I threw my phone because I was like, no, 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 no. I, I will never, ever, ever fit in those boots. Like I appreciate the compliment, and I should have made a video about the comment. Comment still floating around. I forget what it was on one of the horse history videos. And uh, somebody had said that, and I'm like, ooh. And then everybody started tagging TV. Uh huh. I, I guess yeah. they wanna, I guess they're trying to give me a job. Sounds like it. <laughs> but I, I was just. It just took me so off guard. I'm like, first of all, no, I'm nowhere near near what that man was. I appreciate the sentiment, and I know what you're trying to say, but you got to say that different.
1: Yeah, but you know, you've got to remember. I mean, uh, I bet Baxter Black would have been uh, very hesitant to take on the mantle of a, you know, uh, McMurtry or, uh, you know, like anybody from a, a previous generation, uh, you know, the, the medium changes. And so I think, you know, we just need to, to honor these men by trying to carry on what they started. And, you know, uh, you know, Black was born in 1945. So think about like p- epitome of a boomer, right. Yeah. And it's, it's funny because, uh, this generation has become somewhat uh, vilified, but, you know, uh, he's he's just he's the epitome of a boomer because not only was he born in that time, but he, you know, worked his way through his childhood, got his dream job as a veterinarian and then was like, you know what? I want to do something else. I mean, you
0: know, just yeah. like fantastic story. But, you know, he was, you Matt, into- he was Matt. He was Matt Carricker before was Matt Carricker.
1: Yeah, exactly. He said uh, veterinary school is cool, but uh, shooting guns and writing poetry is more fun.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I want to be, be Matt character when I grow up. For anybody that I know. Knows, anybody that doesn't know, that's Demolition Ranch. He's a veterinarian, still yep. licensed veterinarian. His dad was a veterinarian, and now he just gets to play with really cool guns on YouTube.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I went to A&M, and it's so funny because... You're I, an Aggie. Yeah, I'm an Aggie. I'm and, a
0: bulldog, uh, so
1: uh yeah well we'll have to talk about that another time
0: it's okay just just <laughs>
1: luckily we haven't had to play each other yet
0: you know uh, but you know I, mr national champion is fine you don't we can skip the formalities
1: yeah 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 well
0: i did watch jimbo give the uh um i, I had him on another tv doing his uh he was watching the game given the whole you know coach's perspective that was entertaining mm-hmm. uh, i think oh, jimbo, I Jim, jimbo's entertaining he he's, is he's good for football
1: he is very good for football. He's good for a I think we finally have a coach that we're not just, like, mad at all the time. Uh, I always say the two hardest jobs in football are the OU coach and the AM coach because, I mean, Bob Stoops goes out, wins a national championship, and every year from then on, all they did was talk about how he needs to get fired. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like, Listen, he just won us a ring, and it's like – There are people I'm, in
0: Athens right now screaming for uh, Kirby Smart's head. Yeah. Yeah the man just this man in like five years won a national championship. hmm Yeah. And there, there to- people are people like people are like, yeah, you know, he can't manage quarterbacks. He took a walk-on fist string kid and won a national championship. Leave the man alone. So he's got a plan.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, welcome to college football. But uh yeah, back back to Baxter Black. We'll get into quickly his story. So born in 1945, and you know, he's he was born as far away from where you would guess the uh king of Western comedy would be born and that's Brooklyn, New York. Uh, But we're not going to hold that against him because he was actually born at the Naval hospital there. So I could not 100% confirm it, but you know, the only people that are born at the Brooklyn Naval hospital are folks whose dads are working at the shipyard or, or are in the Navy. And the fact that, you know, they quickly moved uh, to Las Cruces, New Mexico, probably proves that his dad was probably, you know, uh, a, a new Mexican who fought in World War II and found himself in, uh, you know, post-war Brooklyn, New York. Not a, uh, you know, Baxter Black is not a, uh, <laughs> a Brooklyn guy. Uh, doesn't have the accent.
0: Could you imagine Baxter Black doing his poetry with like a deep Brooklyn accent, though? Even better. He might have been the the first original, uh, you know, biggie. <laughs> oh. Oh. <laughs> Somebody's got to, somebody out there that does all those, uh, sound mixings with voices got to do baxter black's voice over like biggie small's lyrics yeah there we go somebody needs to make that happen
1: (laughs) uh yeah that would i mean i (laughs) Yeah, he's still rolling over in his grave probably if he he heard that after what what i've learned about uh baxter black you know he he was pretty uh welcoming though so maybe he would have liked it you know he said you're the only one who can know if you're a cowboy or not. So maybe he thinks uh, Biggie might be a cowboy too. So, uh, you know, Baxter actually moved back to Las Cruces, New Mexico, and, you know, was typical uh, American boy, played high school sports, and, uh, you know, a little less typical road bulls uh, all the way through college. But interestingly enough, he was the national FFA president when he was a senior going into his freshman year of college. So uh you know, kind of a first glimpse of uh, you know his, his future life. I mean, I don't know a single FFA officer who's not a fantastic, talented you know public speaker, so uh, pretty interesting little detail that I don't know uh, if he really bragged about or was you know known about him
0: by a lot of people. I didn't know it.
1: Yeah, I had no clue. I don't think it was something that he was uh, you know parading about but when I asked my friend who's in big into FFA he was like oh yeah you know he's one of the people we kind of tout as one of our you know former members but thought that was pretty interesting so rode bulls to pay for his time at uh, New Mexico State University so he's an Aggie of a, a different kind um, and then went to vet school at Colorado State and you know I always say Colorado State vet school I mean obviously you've got Cornell as well but I mean it's kind of the, you know, the Harvard of vet schools, uh, you know, and that's coming from an Aggie. I'll yeah. say that a and is the Yale of vet schools. <laughs> uh,
0: UC Davis will fight you.
1: Uh, but UC Davis is so much more than a vet school. They mm-hmm. are, you know, I, I will say that UC Davis, you know, is the UC Davis of vet schools because they are, you know, far and away like one of the best. But what I'm, I guess I should have put the caveat in. I'm talking
0: about. I just large wanted to animals. put you, I just wanted to put you on the spot.
1: I appreciate that. Because you're right. But large animal, right? Yeah. I mean, Colorado State, AM. I mean, it's just hard to beat those. Cornell and UC Davis are just
0: Kentucky and Georgia.
1: No, I'm not even going to argue. those are in a different tier. They're no, below um, they're below no, Colorado State. No, so.
0: no, I'm about to take like, my shirt off and wrestle. <laughs>
1: I'm looking forward to the the comments, but uh, I will put Colorado State and A&M above them any day.
0: (laughs) These daggum Aggies, man.
1: I know. I know. But, you know, I say all that to say he went to a fantastic veterinary school, um, which means that he must have been a good vet. You know, it's not like he was a flunky. Um, You know, I I don't know anyone who had him treat their horses, but uh, if you go to Colorado State, you're not going to be Uh, a shoddy vet
0: no and and the fact for one had the grades to make it to vet school then Mm -hmm. graduate vet school you're not you're not a fool
1: no no so he graduated in 69 and uh, worked at a few different outfits across the the southwest and you know it says that he was a veterinary technician, which, you know, today a vet tech is kind of a, a different thing than it was back then. I think, you know, uh, he was a full on veterinarian. I mean, he had the, the doctorate degree, so um, more of, you know, a vet, veterinary assistant, you know, uh, kind of an associate, if you will. Um, but, you know, he moved to Benson, Arizona, which is a town that's southeast of Tucson, so not too far from New Mexico and Texas. And, you know, he was working for nearly 20 years in the vet uh, career path, but he'd kind of started e- easing his way back into uh, public speaking. And so, you know, he'd been writing poetry and speaking at small events and whatnot. Um, you know, I, I was kind of equated to uh, <laughs> going to open mics, right. He was getting booked at small time 4-H stuff and, you know, the the county fair and uh, bringing, you know, just a fun little experiment on the side, if you will. Um, but, you know, his, his founding story reminds me a lot of Dan Rather. Um, for those of us from Texas, uh, you know, Hurricane Carla in 1961 was Dan Rather's kind of crowning moment. He was a really young uh, news reporter in the Houston, Galveston area. And when everyone else fled, he said, I'm going to stay and report this thing out. And, you know, the nation fell in love with Dan Rather (laughs) because of this storm, because he was the one on the ground. They were enraptured by what was going on there. And he was the eyes and ears. Um, and, you know, I mean, the rest is history, right? I mean, Dan Rather is one of the most respected men after Walter Cron- Cronkite in the world of uh, news journalism. And, you know, Baxter Black had a similar moment in 1988 on a much smaller scale uh, in NPR. But he noticed that there was not a lot of coverage of some fires that were going on uh, throughout Yellowstone and the, the Western United States. And, he was like, you know, the, the country needs to hear about this. And so he made a little video uh, or a little audio recording and sent it in. And in his words, he's, he literally just like somehow found the address to National Public Radio and addressed on in the mail to National Public Radio and just sent it to D.C. to their office. That's I a, mean, yeah, <laughs> that's, just a,
0: that's a baller move is all that is. <laughs>
1: I know. Can you imagine the guy at the front desk just opens up like, "What is this?" Yeah.
0: You know, and then listening <laughs> I mean, to it, go, "Wait a minute."
1: Yeah, I you know I've, I've worked for uh, uh, elected officials, and so I've sorted through very strange mail. And I you know I swear that if I would have gotten some weird videotape, there's no way I would have even listened to it. <laughs> it would have been straight to the trash can. No. So I mean, this is you know putting it all on the line to. Uh, risk right here. But again, I mean, you probably didn't think it was that big of a deal, but it set off a 20 year career with NPR beginning in the, the eighties. Um, and, you know, he became a regular commentator for the morning edition, which, uh, you know, when I became of driving age uh, in Oklahoma, my entire life, my parents listened to sports animal, which is our local sports radio show. And so when I became driving age, I've always been a nerd, always loved history. And I was so excited to be able to get in my car and listen to two things. And that was the local uh, pop music channel and NPR, which politics aside, you know, I don't agree with them on everything. But the fact that I could like listen to something besides the sports, you know, the the Sooners fans calling in trying to get Bob Stoops fired, uh, you know, (laughs) it was like there's a world outside of OU football. Oh my gosh, this is beautiful. You know? And so, you know, just the fact that he got on this show that, you know, is so accessible to people. And that was one thing that he said, you know, in his obituary on the NPR website, they acknowledged that he was not always friendly to them when it came to politics, you know, (laughs) like he was not their demographic and he was not their guy. But he knew how important it was to share our lifestyle, you know, the Western United States, share that to the rest of the world. And NPR knew that. They knew how important that was. And that's one of the reasons I've always respected NPRs. They will at least put someone like Baxter Black on, you know, give him that chance. And he got his own weekly syndicated uh, radio program, which, uh, you know, was on since 1989. He had a syndicated column, which is probably what most people know him for, which is called On the Edge of Common Sense. And, you know, that was picked up by hundreds of newspapers all over the country. Um, But he, you know, as Jay Ryan and I are trying to do, you know, when someone called you the modern day Baxter Black, maybe you're not as eloquent. Maybe you don't love poetry as much. Maybe you don't put yourself in poetry, but you know, you are in the sense that you're hopping on what can be a very difficult and antagonistic platform and sharing, you know, our way of life. I know that I tell my friends and family, I post a video of someone doing calf roping and, you know, the comments on there are just, you know, not friendly sometimes. And, no. you know, you, you have to give it up to someone like Baxter Black for hopping on NPR and talking about some of the things that he talked about, which are realities in our world that someone who's, you know, driving to work in, uh, you know, suburbs of New York or New Jersey probably has never even thought of.
0: Yeah, it, it, and that was, and to me, that's what made Baxter great. Is he was not scared to jump out there, and really, the epitome of it is, is that, like you said, Baxter knew it was important that. People learn about our way of life and the fact that it was in trouble, that it was – I mean, let's just face it. In that time, that is – the biggest thing the the Western world had going for was Lane Frost, and Lane Frost brought a handful of people in. You had movies like Urban Cowboy that was bringing in a new demographic, but the actual way of life for the real working cowboy was dying. Mm Mm-hmm. And Baxter brought that plight to a whole new market of people.
1: Yeah, it wasn't the, uh, the urban cowboy roughneck, you know, uh, starched wranglers and uh, almost plastic cowboy hats. It was, you know, the, the rough hewn realities of, you know, getting up at the, the crack of dawn and, you know, riding a hard day getting out to the middle of nowhere, doctoring cattle. I mean, he did all that in a comedic or at least, you know, refreshing way that even someone, like I said, who's driving to work in the suburbs can laugh about and think about because, you know what, it, it conjures those images that they saw with, uh, you know, the Roy Rogers and yes. Tom Mix and, you know, O Silver, you know, like all these things. They're remembering all of that, that they saw as a kid and it's being brought to them again in the the eighties, nineties and early two thousands know, in a
0: new way. To me as a kid, there, there are two people on radio that brought joy whenever I heard them and one being Baxter black and the other being, uh, and the name was just, it, it just skipped right out of my head. <laughs> it, it, it seems to always happen. Um, did God made a farmer? Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, never mind. It, it was there and then it was gone. Um, but those two, I, I remember being little and going to work with my dad. My dad owned a small construction company and I'd get bored on the job and go sit in the truck, and turn the radio on. Paul Harvey.
1: Yeah. And,
0: you, uh, you know, I would listen to Paul Harvey and we would listen to Baxter Black on NPR that morning. And that was my day. That was my day as a kid. And as a kid being drawn in. Yeah. By stories. Oh yeah. Because, yeah. you know, again, I was from a family that ran a construction company and had a few seed cattle and hated horses. So, you know, that was my escape, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, here in Texas, uh, the, the local NPR station that I listen to has a, uh, um, Uh, hour-long program that's just Texas-centric, right? Mm -hmm. And so they cover the news stories of the day. uh, But they also have a guy, his name is um, H.W. Brands, who's a historian. I'm sure many of the folks that are listening to my podcast or yours have uh, heard him talk. And, you know, he will go through um, some stories. And then they also have, uh, you know, uh, him tell stories and at the end of it, it's funny. He goes, you know, these are stories about Texas and some of them are true. And, you know, it's like, it's that somewhat suspension of belief that, you know, Baxter Black would bring where you're like, okay, of course the, the wife who came out in the nighty to help her husband, you know, pull the calf is not actually hanging from the rafters, Yeah. but you know, we've all, I've, I remember waking up in the middle of the night, you know, it's, you know, because we're quarter horse breeders, of course, it's gotta be right after January 1st. So it's freezing yeah. Oklahoma weather and you're running out there in your pajamas, your boots and, you know, a winter coat. And so like, you just, you remember these things and it's just, I mean, in a world of YouTube podcasts and TikToks, uh, you know, sometimes it is fun to go back and see uh, poetry and, you know, the spoken word and kind of have that imaginative uh, build in your own mind, right?
0: Yeah, and I don't think a lot of people understand, especially those that aren't in the, especially for my listeners, because I have a good mix of English and Western um, writers that, that come on, and I don't think they understand how much um, poetry is involved in just the Western way of life. For one, just the way of life itself is poetic. I mean, there's been a many a romance novel based on, on that way of life you know you can yeah. you can go down the that that aisle of romance novels, and half of them will be about a cowboy and a horse or a ranch or he he come to work that summer you know and yeah it's all eerily poetic, and Baxter was one that took full advantage of that and and, and not for clout but as a way of getting the message out,
1: yeah. And you know, he he became the the voice to folks that we sometimes don't talk to. Um, yeah. and that's you know that's something that I find so important. Uh, you know, I love I love Taylor Sheridan, I love Yellowstone, I love Hell or High Water, you know, I love all of his stuff. Why? I don't care if you know, I <laughs> I'll tell people I say. Yeah, a lot of this is very accurate. Of course, we've never killed anybody. You know, but yeah. like a lot of, you know, Kimes Ranch jeans, raining, whatever. But at least we're getting in front of, I mean, I don't care if, you know, the punchy types sometimes get mad about, you know, that's not accurate or you're bringing in these well, people. And I'm like, you know what?
0: If you made it at completely least, accurate, people wouldn't watch it because it'd be boring. Yeah, at least he's talking to the
1: people who we don't typically talk to.
0: You know, I, I've had the privilege of working with uh, Discovery Channel and History Channel and then on a um, a couple of small-budget films. Mm-hmm. And they want me to come up with basically the, the background. What is going on? What are people thinking? How are people dressed? Um, all the way down to how would someone just walk and approach someone? And I give that to them. And then I will go in sometimes as they're filming scenes, and then I'll get the look over, like, would he have done that like that? Is that okay? And I'll go, no, he would have done it like this. And then I go, well, that doesn't work. And I go, well <laughs> then do it your way because my way is a lot more boring. Yeah. you know,
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, Baxter black, you know, again, when you talk about like finding a way to make it palatable for folks that are outside of the industry, I mean, if he wanted to, he could have written journal journal articles for the Quarter horse journal or, you know, uh, Racing track today, or you know, all these places. It's like, okay, cool. Yeah, like great, great riding. But uh if you're going to hop on something like NPR and appeal to folks that have never seen a horse outside of you know the the drawn carriages in their downtown, I mean, you're going to have to have someone who can enthrall you and capture you and you know same with taylor sheridan i mean <laughs> like you said if there wasn't a little bit of murder and uh, suspense then people probably wouldn't be tuning into yellowstone every no
0: week. i mean you know violence and sex sell yeah and yeah. you know it's just the crux of it that's that's what it will be yellowstone is a is an amazing show if you watch the in between the lines type scenes Mm -hmm. you know uh one always comes to mind is him bringing up uh bringing up a bunch of horses to bring not not to get sidetracked but they're bringing up all the horses and one of them gets mad because he gets stuck with the mares and i'm like that's a real thing like it's just a little thing that nobody will think about and i'm like "I, i would be i would be that guy yeah you know
1: yeah or you know, I I even say it's funny from our perspective. Uh, you know, I was watching the first episode with my wife the other day, who she didn't grow up showing horses. And when Casey goes and gets that Mustang, and then calmly back calmly backs it out of the trailer, I'm like, there's no, no way, there's no world. <laughs> you know, there's not a, there's not a single you know iteration of the hypotheticals where that man walks into that trailer and backs that horse out of there. But you know, again, she doesn't know that she's not mad about that. uh, My daughter, my daughter,
0: (laughs) my daughter is nine. My daughter is more punchy than I'll ever be. My daughter caught that. She goes, daddy. And I said, what? She goes, is that a different horse? (laughs) I said, it's supposed to be the same horse. She goes, that wouldn't happen that way. Would it? And I'm like, Nope. (laughs) I said, Casey would have got his brains kicked out, baby.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I was like, first first mistake is that there's a two foot gap between the back of that trailer and that round pin. (laughs)
0: You know, it's like, oh man. That is straight where that plug's going.
1: Yeah. So, you know, you just, you think about these men and, you know, they're so much more talented than any of us will ever be. And that's why they've had the success they do. Um, But, you know, they they play such a, a key role in telling the story and, you know, we can only hope to uh, continue yeah. to do that through our you know, cheesy well, they, TikToks and podcasts.
0: <laughs> well, you know, they, they didn't wake up and go, I want to be ambassadors for an entire industry. Mm-hmm. It was something that honestly was put on them. Yeah. And they flourished. Baxter flourished and, and Taylor Sheridan, love him or hate him, is a good ambassador for the industry. Yeah. Because if you can get through the crust, just through the crust to get into it. If it, if it gets one person industry uh, interested and they go out there and they get a horse that nobody wanted and they go buy a DVD or go buy a boat or they fall in with a trainer and they train that horse and they have a horse and they get to go play cowboy on the weekends. That's one horse. Yeah. That's one more person in the industry that can pass on all the tradition of this world to the next generation.
1: And I mean, even if they don't even do that much, the, you know, the the greedy side of it, you think about just the dollars spent, you know, if they go to one rodeo, you know, if ten, if 10 people at each rodeo, you pull them and say, why'd you come? And they say, Yellowstone, imagine the impact that has on our industry, on new money coming in. This isn't your trainer going to the feed store and paying the feed store $10 and the feed store's daughter buys a horse oh, yeah. you know, like there's this the ecosystem we're getting uh, oh, new yeah. money in
0: it <laughs> a good example of that is road to the horse this year um yeah. so four has provided all the all the horses for road to the horse you and they had their uh big booth set up selling four sixes stuff which they have some pretty neat things by the way guys i'm not gonna lie their keychains that are uh calf tags yeah are pretty pretty sweet and um, I, I rock one not even gonna lie but um you would be amazed at the people that came in on the free day on Wednesday took the day off of work just to show up so they could see the real four sixes Cowboys and those red four sixes shirts Mm -hmm. bring in all those wild four sixes horses that had been on range for a couple of years and watch them run through the arena. People are just, the lights went down the spotlight to come on and there was cameras flashing everywhere. Mm Mm-hmm even I got excited. I mean, I'm just like, Ooh, you know, what do we got going on here? You know?
1: (laughs) Well, you know, I always tell people like, again, my wife not growing up in the industry when we head to a rodeo, what is my favorite thing to watch? You know, I will, I love watching saddle bronc and the bareback riding. Me too. I love the technicality. I love scoring it. You know, like it's just like baseball keeping your own scores.
0: Can I make an admission here? And you might go along with this. And it's a twofold thing. I like how for one, I like how it's sport uh scored with the spur out. It's so technical. Yeah. I love watching pickup riders.
1: That I tell I always tell my wife, I say, there's no way those guys are sober doing that job because that I you know you cannot it. convince me to get on a horse and go do that.
0: No, <laughs> you know? no, 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 no. Yeah, you got to. I mean, there yeah. there are a couple of Rocky Mountain Spring waters in deep to do that job.
1: Yeah. But, you know, I, 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 say that's my favorite part as someone who's grown up in the industry, but hers, just as you just explained is something that they're starting to do at more and more rodeos is the born to buck where you get a horse out, you know, horse out there that just bucked and you send out it's full mm-hmm. or, you know, you send out all of the the mares with their foals yes, and talk yes. about, you know, this is the next generation of bucking horses. And, you know, this is what they're bred to do. They love this. This is their job. You know, like that speaks to people that are not looking at a, you know, Bronc rider saying, well, you know, he didn't spur it properly. And, you know, his seat was bad. Like, and you know, so.
0: Let's just negate that 50% of that scores is the horse.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, exactly. Um, but, you know, it's just, we need people like Baxter. We need people like Sheridan. Uh, you know, I'll venture to say we need people like ourselves to continue to tell stories and hopefully find new audiences. And that's something that I hope, you know, TikTok, podcast, whatever, I want to break out of, you know, the the folks that we cater to on a day-to-day basis and see if there's another group that we can pull in. And I think, you know, history is one of those places. If we can get Historians who would typically be become nerds about you know Civil War battles to start talking about you know ranches.
0: Yeah. <laughs> like, well, so I I had a conversation with somebody recently and it was along those lines and they made a comment and it was I was talking about cavalry horses and um, a particular cavalry horse and the guy goes i reenacted you know Civil War so many years you know I grew up reenacting everything from Rev War to Vietnam, but um he's like i've read out the civil war for so many years and we always excuse me we always picked on um calvary guys you know the reenactors which we always did too we called them uh i can't say that i can't say it on air but what what we what we used to call them um but they did provide free food because they'd always cut cabbages and melons in half with their sabers doing a little demonstration for kids on friday and we go back and make a stew out of it and camp <laughs> regardless he goes i spent all those years making fun of them goes but now after watching you know a handful of videos on the history of these cavalry horses he goes I'm kind of interested in wanting to do it yeah and, and seeing that's the kind of things that's my goal right there is to do that and I'll be honest with you from the your content I'd always been a passerby when it come to you know the height of the old West as far as the history goes until I started watching some of your histories on some of the ranches and some of the figures, And now I've got where I'll find myself on my phone going through things like Wikipedia and going through random websites about just these, these ranches that I, you know, I, you know, growing up East of the Mississippi, these big ranches aren't as prominent as they are out West. We Mm -hmm. have some, we have some big ranches here. Don't get me wrong. You know, we have, um, uh, we have Creek ranch, not too far from me and it's thousands of acres, but it, you know we don't have it like you guys and the and the history um i guess isn't as popular even though some of these ranches here in east of mississippi are older yeah you know they they were ranches and then they were or they were plantations and then they just changed their name to ranch because history you know um and so you have gotten me you know going through the history of this stuff and and got me excited about it
1: yeah, well, I certainly appreciate that. And, you know, one thing that I think that you're doing that is harder for me um, that I, you know, because of the time commitment that I always try and find myself doing is like your history of the horses, which is so needed. You know, whenever I post a video like my wimpy one, I mean, that's my second most famous or popular video behind Charles Goodnight. The only reason that one got popular is because Charles Goodnight got two episodes on 1883, you know, like that's when that one exploded. But people are like, I want to know more about, you know, these horses. And so, you know, it's, it's some, there's a, there's a hunger for it. And, uh, you know, I, I know we're both history nerds, but I, I always say that there's an event in Texas history that has got to have a movie made about it or a miniseries or something. Uh, Do you know the story of Quanah Parker, the last Comanche uh, chief? No, I I don't. Quanah Parker was the last Comanche chief. He was the one that finally allowed them to be moved to the reservation in Oklahoma off the Texas land. And, uh, you know, the Texas Rangers essentially were created to uh, get the uh, native American problem solved because of how hard the Comanches were, um, and his mother was actually a white woman who had been captured by the Comanches. Uh, her name was Cynthia Ann Parker in the uh, late 1850s. During the Civil War, there was a group of Texas Rangers that included Charles Goodnight, C.C. Slaughter, Lawrence Sullivan Ross, who would go on to be the president of A&M, and then the governor, and you know a laundry list of these men, who rescued her. And just like to think that all of these men <laughs> that, you know, you can tell, I, I've told stories about six of them on my podcast, uh, became just wildly, you know, successful, you know, members of the Texas pantheon in their own right. And then on the other side of this to have quana Parker come out of that, you know, as the Comanche chief, I mean, just history is weird. You know, <laughs> it's, it's strange. And, that's why I love these stories, and I love talking about Buster Welch. And you know, you, you start talking about a ranch that he worked on, and all of a sudden, you know, you can go down a hundred rabbit holes. And that's what's so dangerous about Wikipedia is those darn blue links on the words. Yeah, <laughs>
0: uh, you know, it's I always tell people um, if you just want to get read the uh, the top section of a Wikipedia forget about the rest because that's usually where people start adding little tidbits that don't make yeah. any sense whatsoever. And I can go through a hundred articles and go. Um, so something that is very passionate to me and it, it, it irritates me and everybody's going to laugh. Um, and that is the Titanic. <laughs> I've always yeah. prided myself with being uh, if you got a question, I got an answer. Um, I can go through the Wikipedia article and go, no, that, that time was wrong. No, that didn't happen. No, you know, all the way down to like myths of other ships that was in the area and this, that, and the other. And I was like, well, you know, if you go back and you'll actually, you know, read the hearing notes, yes, you'll, you'll you'll get testimony that says that no, you know. Mm-hmm. And so history is something that unfortunately you can't always take at face value. For sure, it yes. is. Yeah, and and there's a reason, <clears throat> and something else too. <clears throat> and a lot of people don't understand, I just want to put this out there is that just because somebody is a historian or a history nerd, or they work in a museum system or they, they write history based blogs or they, they write books or whatever. They typically do not have all that information on the top of their head. No. The One of the things I learned in school right off the bat is they taught us to research mm-hmm. and, and to take notes. And, and then, to be able to know where to find the information when we need it, because the brain only holds so much, and the amount of people that just think, "Oh oh yeah, he should know that," and I'm like, "I don't know that. What are you talking about?"
1: Yeah, I mean, my last podcast was uh, over a month ago. You know why? <laughs> because it takes a lot of time <laughs> to get the information together for one of these historical podcasts. Well, I know
0: yeah, I know when I first approached you, uh, I think you said you needed at least two weeks yeah. To get it all that, and I know exactly, I know exactly what you're talking about. I'm fixing to do a about a 20 minute video on for YouTube, and I've filmed about half of it, but I'm at the end of some information, and there's a part of the story that I want to tell, but there's a lot of hearsay around it. So you know, I'm I'm trying to separate the wheat from the chaff there before I continue recording and continue the research on it. So it it history can be. History is um, my passion, your passion. Uh, But it can be a nightmare. It's the reason I'm gonna go bald. Yeah, it's the reason I have this big white stripe in my beard. It's why I've got a piebald beard. It's just history, and 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 an eye twitch that won't go away.
1: And you know, you just have to live with uh, the decision that you made. As you know, an amateur historian, I always tell people, I'm like, this is not my day job. This is my passion. Trying to bring you know, these stories to you, if I'm wrong, please tell me in the comments, point me to the book so I can go read that book, you know, like do it all. And that's what I love about history is that, you know, it is something that's kind of strangely still alive and always changing. How much of what you learned when you were in third grade about the American Revolution was just purely wrong?
0: You know, (laughs) About 85% of it yeah and you know like like, and then like south washington's the
1: only truth that i was told yeah (laughs) and
0: you know and like uh again talking about how history is always written by the victor yeah the american revolution is a fine example of that because if you really dig into the meat and potatoes of the lead up to the revolution and the fighting during the revolution we should not have won by any stretch we should not have won and then you know the um what took place here in my home state of south carolina uh helping push uh the army north because they were just tired of dealing with what they referred to as farmers and uh ended up in (laughs) yeah ended up ended up in uh ended up at yorktown yeah and everybody always negates how many thousands of french troops were at yorktown a lot a lot yeah
1: yeah and you know it was uh funny because you know it's it's the the french have been fighting i mean literally the only thing that changed was between the french and indian war or the seven years war and i was just i was just
0: about to say that's just an extension of the seven years war
1: yeah is that the americans switched sides that's the only reason like we're we can talk about how victorious and glorious you know all this was but we were essentially a swing vote and we switched from one side to the other exactly and you know, and everyone oh,
0: yeah. everyone wants to say that, uh, you know, Washington left New York, you know, after the winter with a professional army. He did not. <laughs> he left with the same ragtag army. They could just march and 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 knew how to hold a uh, a musket at that point in yeah. time. The French showed up with a professional army.
1: <laughs> yep. Yep. Well, I know uh, we've gone almost, what, two hours, so I appreciate your time and uh, glad we got to talk about these two men. You know, it's uh, unfortunate that we didn't get to do it right afterwards, but like you said, you know, scheduling, timing, uh, I wanted to get this story right. You know, they deserved it. And um, I would encourage everyone to, first of all, go look up videos of both of these men uh, applying their craft because they were masters at it. And uh, second of all, you know, to to thank them for where our industry is today.
0: Most definitely. Um, and I greatly appreciate you coming on uh, for my audience. And, um, I've, you know, it's something that's been in the works forever, but it, it does take some time. We had weather. We had research, um, even though I was completely unprepared. You weren't. That's, that's why I'm glad you were here. Um, I'll just blame having three daughters. That's okay.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, we, life gets in the way and, uh, I thank you for finding the time and, you know, hopefully we can do another one of these, hopefully under better circumstances. I don't want to do any more obituaries. No, no.
0: I would like to, uh, (laughs) you know, I'd like to do something, uh, something fun, uh, you know, something, something fun within the industry, uh, maybe get some laughs out of it. So, yeah,
1: we'll, uh, we'll talk about Mr. Ed or something.
0: <laughs> yeah, you know, that is a, um, that's actually a pretty fascinating story.
1: That's what I've heard.
0: Yeah, bamboo, I've heard. bamboo Harvester has got a fascinating story. In fact, though, I'd tell you what I'd like to do because it would be a long one. I would love to do Sergeant Reckless with you.
1: Okay. Yeah. I would be down. That would be quite the story.
0: So, so we'll go ahead and mark it on the calendar two years from now. Yes. Between weather. No, no, I've got law
1: school four and a half years, four and a half
0: years (laughs) at law school. So yeah, that way when somebody slaps me with copyright infringement, I can just be like, Austin,
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'll keep you 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 on retainer. Yeah.
0: No, thank you very much.